Welcome to the Turtle Shell Therapy Institute, a podcast made to help you learn how to feel more comfortable inside and outside of your shell. Hello, I'm your host, James Nee Hundley, and today we're going to be talking about the avoidant attachment style. So a lot of times when we talk about attachment, I feel like the anxious attachment style gets the most spotlight and is talked about the most, at least in my experience. I've seen, I haven't seen as much talked about with the avoidant attachment style, but it is very relevant. um, And a lot of people also live with an avoidant attachment style. Now avoidance, I think part of it is because anxiety is pretty clear. It's about looking for reassurance. Typically, people with anxious attachment styles learn that they need to escalate things to try and be heard, but then become anxious because what if that was too much? The avoidant attachment style has the same goal as any insecure attachment style to try and get their needs met, to try and remain physically and emotionally safe in a relationship. Again, attachment is how you've learned to exist in a relationship. It's the blueprint. How do I get people to stay with me and not abandon me? How do I stay safe? How do I get my needs met? The avoidant attachment style can be seen as more silent. Because what avoidance has taught them is to just avoid their needs, avoid conflict, avoid upsetting people. Or if I do upset people, some people with avoidant attachment styles learn to, to dismiss that and not care about it as a way of survival because they wouldn't be able to handle how they would would feel the guilt or the anxiety if they had to worry about somebody being upset with them or leaving. It's important because just like the anxious attachment style can manifest in several different ways with people, the avoidant attachment style can also manifest in, in several different ways. A lot of times what I hear when I meet somebody with avoidant attachment patterns or somebody who's a partner of somebody who has avoidant attachment patterns. I typically hear a lot of descriptors like they're narcissistic, they're cold, they just don't care. That's all survival mechanism. The person with the avoidant attachment style learned, I have to detach from these feelings or I have to go within. Now, I want to be really clear I will be talking about this. Some people with avoidant attachment will detach from their emotions and not feel any, you know, not really feel a whole lot, or they're able to sort of like, they'll feel something and then it just kind of goes away. Maybe they even forget about it. Um, That's a dissociative tactic that people with avoidant tendencies develop. Some people will feel very anxious. And we could even say that maybe they're more anxious avoidant. They go within, but all of their anxiety is inside. And they have to just work on internally processing it because it's too scary to talk about it or make it external or to really express it or feel it. So they avoid it or they dismiss it. In the book I wrote, The Attachment Theory Journal, Section 3 is all about understanding the avoidant attachment style. In here, I talk about how an avoidant attachment style seeks logic and value self-reliance. You can become dismissive of the feelings and needs of anyone, including yourself. You can view emotions as irrational and as creating unnecessary conflict. Avoidance creates the illusion of safety and convinces you you're better off alone. 
It can suggest that people can be unpredictable, so it's safer to avoid them. The reality is, is that cutting off your needs and your emotions tends to just lead to feeling isolated. If you cut off just sadness or anxiety, you're going to cut off all the emotions, including joy. And if you cut off from connecting to other people, that's also going to lead to depression, anxiety, uh, just low mental health, because that's what we all need. We all need autonomy, but we also all need to feel connected and feel like we can rely on some people. That's just part of being a social animal. So this section of the book primarily provides exercises that are helping the person reconnect with their avoidant attachment style. Now, if you don't have an avoidant attachment style, but maybe you have someone in your life who does, the section of the book can still be helpful because it can help you possibly understand what their experience is like. So the very first practice that I have in here is about reconnecting. This attachment style creates a disconnection not only from others, but also from yourself. So to be able to reconnect with yourself, your emotions, your needs. A lot of times when I work with people with avoidant attachment styles, the knowing what's going on in their body or being aware of their own thoughts or emotions is a very foreign concept to them. It makes sense because they spent a majority of their life learning to disconnect from those or not pay any attention to those or dissociate away from them in some way. That's not to say when I work with people who have anxious attachment patterns, they just know what to do, but they do tend to be a little more in touch with their body because they're not able to ignore it as easily. So usually it's a lot easier to connect. My practice with people with anxiety, the first thing is usually to more contain. And changing the meaning, which is going to, I'll talk about in a second with avoidant attachment, changing the meaning so that you're able to tolerate it, but it's more containing the anxiety so it doesn't go all over the place and get really big. With avoidance, there's no containment because there's no connection to the feelings. So I need to start by reconnecting. And while we're doing that, we're also talking about how, what is, what meaning do you have around these feelings? A lot of times it's emotions lead to conflicts or some iteration of that, some variation of emotions. I can't do anything about it anyway. Then I just feel upset and the other person feels upset. It's just easier. So the book also goes on to have you reflect on when you think of needs in a relationship. What comes up for you at the idea of relying on others to meet those needs? Usually people with avoidant attachment may not even consider that or have ever even thought about that. Why would I rely on anybody? A lot of times when I gather information, especially about history and early experiences, at a pretty young age, these people learned people aren't going to meet my needs. Or if they are, I'm going to have to figure out some way to almost like trick them or make them meet my needs. But most of the time it doesn't work. So they just dismiss their own needs or figure out how to get their own needs met and become very self-reliant at a very young age, which is why that be can become such a value. It's also, it complements our culture pretty well, American culture, because part of American culture is to be very self-reliant. We almost put an overemphasis on that to where it's unhealthy. Because we make people feel like if they need to rely on anybody, that they're somehow weak or defective or that there's something wrong with them, when really it's a balance. We need to rely on some people. It's good to be self-reliant. I'm not saying that it's bad, but nobody is an island. We, we can't 
do everything on our own for our own survival and mental well-being, emotional well-being, even physical well-being. We still need help from some people. Now, that's not to say people can't survive at all on their own, but it's definitely going to be traumatic and it's going to be lonely and it's going to impact your psyche, your body in a lot of negative ways. We need community. That's a big part of human history. The book will go on and it helps the person going through it by breaking it down and thinking about when have you relied on people in different roles, authority figures, coworkers, maybe like your greater community, like your neighbors, extended family friendships, parent and caregiver relationships, romantic relationships, just to have the person reflect on what has their experience been like? And is this, have any of these contributed to them feeling like they can't rely on other people or that they shouldn't rely on other people, that it's maybe like bad or wrong to rely on other people? Because that's the other thing too. The person may not necessarily feel like they can't rely on, on other people. That's, that's a very common thing that I see is that they learned really early on that they can't rely on other people. Other people are just going to let them down. Um, but the other piece of that, too, is that people taught them that there's something wrong with them for needing help, that they're somehow defective or weak or not, not intelligent for needing help at a very young age. So, again, it may even be a thing like, well, why would I ask for help? There's something wrong with people who need help. And that can be a whole family culture thing that can be. That can sometimes even just be parent, well-intentioned parents trying to create a self-reliant independent child and going a little too far to the other end of the spectrum where they don't do any scaffolding or, <clears throat> or any sort of teaching because they just want the kid to just figure it out, which can be appropriate in some context, depending on the age of the kid. Is this something the kid has ever done before or ever seen you do before? But it's important when we're raising children that we do some form of scaffolding. We teach and then scaffolding is watching them, observing them, maybe helping here and there, giving some, some guidance, not necessarily correction, because that can also not be helpful. That can also develop an anxious anxiety or avoidance, because if you're very critical or jumping in and like, ah, nope, not like that, not like that, that might teach a child, okay, I don't want to ask for help because it's very stressful and I'm going to upset people anyway and I'm going to feel bad and they're going to be frustrated with me. And then they grow up into adults who would just rather just do it by themselves. And that can generalize into everything. It's okay to, to do some things by yourself, but the avoidant attachment style to remind myself is that all people need people. An important mantra that I like to remind myself is all people need people sometimes. That's a good way to summarize everything that I was just saying. All people need people sometimes. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're incapable. It just means sometimes you need people. And it might even be something that you usually can do on your own. But if you're going through a hard time, like grief or a large amount of stress, or it's just it's just a period in your life where you're just you just don't have the the capacity that you usually do. You might need people to help you. We're communal animals. We need community. We need help and support sometimes.
my journal also provides a self-check-in. So when another person is relying on you for something, what happens for you? Again, a lot of this section is to help the person with avoidant attachment learn how to their internal world and their thoughts and their feelings and emotions when certain things happen. <clears throat> so the check-in, I mean, it's pretty thorough. It starts with the I think, I feel, in my body I feel, my action. Now I have little check boxes where I provide things, but it's a journal. You're able to write in it. So if any of the things that I list don't match the column, you can just write something in. So I have, I think, can I provide that? I will fail. Or why is this my responsibility? You might also have all three of them. So you could check all of them. You could check one or two. You could add one. If none of those fit, that you're able to identify a thought that does fit. And then I feel I just list different emotions in my body. I feel now that can be confusing, especially when I work with people who typically are more avoidant in nature. There's feeling emotions, but then there's also body sensations. Now, emotions, you can feel certain body sensations with certain emotions. A lot of times they do feel really similar. I know part of my experience is I feel a lot of things in my gut um, and in my chest and my jaw. But in learning the different body signals, I can see there are some subtle differences. When I'm anxious, I do tend to get a lot of tension in my jaw and my neck and my shoulders. And my stomach tends to, tends to churn. The stomach is less when I'm angry, but definitely the, the, the jaw and the neck stuff happens. Um, I also tend to notice like anger feels different from anxiety just because the tension just feels slightly different too. Um, sadness feels very different in my body. Usually I feel more in my eyes um, and more in my throat. Just as an example, now this is helpful because by understanding our body signals, we can start to also understand what emotions happening and developing and try to explore that. It can also be a good cue of like, okay, I do need to slow down. Cause that's another thing that can come up with avoidant attachment. Like I said, emotions are, the thoughts are usually emotions are irrational. It leads to conflict. Sometimes that's because usually both uh, the person has witnessed, oh, when people get emotional, sad, angry, anxious, scared, jealous, uh, they, they get really unpredictable. There can also be a fear or anxiety. I become unpredictable when I, when I allow these emotions to be. So if I dismiss them, so I don't, so I can stay in control. There's a lot of trying to stay in control to stay safe and get their needs met. Because if I lose control, then people might leave me or see me as an unsafe person. These aren't always conscious thoughts, but this is sort of the psychology behind why these things develop. So after the my body, then I also have you reflect on what are your act, what action do you take? It's emotions, feelings, and how it guides their actions. Then I go on to ask people to reflect on how they usually get their needs met. Um, do you do anything? Um, one thing I would even add there that I don't have as a question is, do you think you have needs? I ask that question a lot in therapy in different ways. You know, what, what is it like to have needs? Um, what sort of needs do you have? Do, do you feel like you have needs in a relationship? And a lot of times I'll get people who will say they don't even know what their needs are because they're so used to not even thinking about it that they can't even think of like what it would, what it would be. 
that's also part of why their partners will tend to think of them as very narcissistic or cold. If you can't even think of your own needs, how can you think of the needs of others? Now, sometimes that does develop. I tend to see that more with anxiety, sometimes with avoidance. Um, I'm able to read other people and figure out their needs better than I can figure out my own needs. So I don't want to make it seem like that never happens. But typically, if you're not even able to think of your own needs, it's, it's going to be hard for you to think of the needs of others. Um, but sometimes you are so focused on the needs of others that you don't even take the time or even think to take space to think about what do I need? What do I want in a relationship? Then I go on to have the person also reflect on when you think of a self-reliant person, what three to five words do you associate with them and why? How do you know if someone is self-reliant? This is actually a really important question because it's, it's associations, it's understanding. When you are seeing, when you are striving to be self-reliant, what are you actually striving for? What does that mean? And is it realistic? <laughs> That's a pretty common conversation I'll have in therapy as well, too. A lot of people think being self-reliant means that they won't need anybody. And that's not actually what self-reliant means. Self-reliant means, in most cases, you're able to figure it out. That also includes figuring out how to ask for help. That's not, it's not codependent to need help from somebody. There are just some things that we're just not able to do. I mean, most things we can't do without other people. We can't even make a doctor's appointment without another person. We have to call the doctor's office, speak to a person and make a doctor's appointment. Yeah, there's just very few things I can think of where we're fully self-reliant. We're not needing some person. So if we look at it that way, in order to make an appointment, I have to interact with another person and they will make the appointment. That's still self-reliant, but you are needing to talk to another person. I don't know how to do something. Like say, I, I've never navigated any something like this before. Like I feel I, like the medical system, I feel like is one where that comes up a lot. You have to call and being self-reliant is being able to make that call and ask the questions that need to be asked of another person to help you navigate something. And if you don't know the questions, it's still self-reliant if you need to call a parent or a friend or somebody to ask like, hey, I'm going through this and I, do you know what kind of things I should ask or who I should call? That's so self-reliant. You're figuring it out on your own. And you're not having the other person do it for you. You're just asking to see if they know something that maybe you don't know. So we have an understanding that the avoidant attachment style is all about disconnecting, dismissing, and avoiding thoughts, emotions, body sensations, all to try and stay safe within a relationship and get their needs met by not having needs. This also includes either not noticing or maybe consciously dismissing the emotions and needs of others as an attempt to try and stay safe and in a relationship, which may seem counterproductive. But again, this is insecurity. This is what I learned growing up. For all we know, you may have had a caregiver who would get really dysregulated or really upset. And you learned, okay, if I just kind of lie low and leave them alone, eventually it'll just blow over. Now you may consciously be able to say, like in a logical sense, 
yeah, that's not going to work, but it's what happens emotionally. It's what you learned. It's the blueprint that you learned. And that's important to remember too, for people who have partners that have avoidant tendencies, because it can look very much like the person is just abandoning you, um, maybe even being condescending, just not even caring when really it's, they don't know what to do. This is all they've ever learned. This is all they know to do in these situations. Um, either go into a freeze mode, completely go into like a dismissive mode. For some people with avoidant tendencies, they may even become condescending. And that's probably something that they learned growing up. Either directly from a caregiver or they watch their caregivers or other adults become so irrational and so escalated that, yeah, emotions look ridiculous. They make you look ridiculous. They make you do things that you're going to regret. So naturally, they would grow into adults who don't value emotions and have created this meaning that emotions are pointless, they're irrational, they only lead to bad things. So part of the reconnection, part of my work is also helping change their relationship and the meaning of emotions. In the book, I start by focusing just on anger. Not always, but a lot of times I found anger is usually one of the more accessible emotions. Um... I'll also start with it too, because if it's not the most accessible emotion, sometimes it's not, it's just not the most accessible emotion. Um, but it's one that can, that's really important to change their relationship with. Because a lot, a lot of people come in thinking that anger is either the only way to get people to do what you need them to do, or people will come in saying anger is to be avoided at all costs. It's a violent emotion. It's aggressive nothing good comes from it. It makes you lose control. Some of you listening may even have that, that relationship with anger or see that meaning come up when you're getting angry. This means that either I or someone else is going to become very rational or very dangerous. So I start by reminding all emotions have helpful intentions within them. Anger is the self-advocate of emotions. From annoyance to rage, anger is protective of you and people you care about. However, it is important to keep in mind that sometimes anger isn't the primary emotion. Once you work through the anger, you may identify a primary emotion that was driving the anger. Try this exercise to help discover the helpful intent of anger and identify if anger is the primary emotion. So all you do is you start by taking a calming breath and reflect on a time you were angry. Think about how you felt the anger in your body. You know, like I was saying earlier before, for me specifically, I'll feel a lot of tension in my jaw, my neck, my shoulders. A lot of times, um, maybe even my upper back, my, my fists will usually start to kind of like feel tense, like they want to tight my hands. Um, and I usually feel like a rising a little bit here in my chest. What this is doing is it can help, one, help you learn what are the signals I'm starting to get angry. And two, it can help you start to access the memory so I can really like think through it. So after you identify that, think what was the anger about? And there may be multiple reasons. As you're thinking through it, can you identify a theme with the reasons? Is there something common? Um, like I was feeling disrespected. Um, Uh, you know, all of these different things sort of made, made me feel like they thought this person thought I was incapable. 
After that, with that in mind, in one sentence, what was the primary reason you were angry? And then you write down. So you might say, like I said, I felt incapable. I felt disrespected. After that, then you say, does anger still feel like the primary emotion? Which it might, but if not, what emotion fits? Use the following list to help guide you. So then I list a few different emotions too. So feeling disrespected may absolutely make you feel angry, but as you sit with it, you might feel the anger start to dissipate and it might be more like sadness or fear. What if I'm not a respectable person and they see that and that's why they're doing this? Or sadness. I work so hard and I don't get any respect. Anger may be there too. We're also capable of having more than more than one emotion at a time. But this is just to really help dissect and really analyze and help the person reading this start to really learn how to navigate and understand what are all the different facets and different parts of what was going on with me in those moments. What is this connected to? What emotion or emotions come up during the during reminders of this experience or whenever I think about it? I also go on in the book on validating and honoring that avoidance is a survival tactic that somebody learned. So just like with anxiety, letting it go or trying to change the meaning of it can feel very dangerous. It is important to sit and reflect and honor how did your avoidance help you? This is also helpful for the reader because you might feel a lot of shame or embarrassment that you have these, these different patterns that you learned. That's why in each of these episodes, I emphasize so much, this is what you learned. Whether you wanted to learn it or not, whether people wanted to teach it to you or not, this is what happened. This is what you've learned. It's not because you're defective. It's not even always necessarily because you have a bad family or because you had bad people in your life, like peers or teachers or anything like that. It can be, but it, it really, if we look at it, this is where you're at right now. This is what you learned. This is what happened. And here are some ways to learn something different. So I have little prompts that just say my avoidance has helped me by, my avoidance has been unhelpful by, and then the people can list different ways. Um, the helpful can be also helpful to reflect on, on like, what are some things maybe I want to keep? There are some people and some situations where it is best to try and maybe avoid a conflict. If you have somebody who is pretty confrontational or somebody who will jump to conclusions um, or just isn't a very kind person for whatever, for whatever reason, whatever they've lived through. Sometimes it can make sense to listen to that instinct of like, okay, this is a person I don't want to be vulnerable with. This is a person maybe I want to avoid, or maybe like appease a little bit to avoid a conflict. Um, so that I can find maybe a better and more productive way to try and communicate to them that won't lead to a conflict. Those are, that's an example of a situation where avoidance could possibly be helpful, being able to sense, is this a person or a situation where maybe I shouldn't say anything um, or try to fly under the radar. I don't think it comes up a ton, but I think it can come up with certain people and certain personality types where it's just safer and better for you to just sort of like avoid and fly under the radar. So it's important to think of when it can be helpful. And it's also just as important to think about avoidance, when do I not? So the rest of the section goes on to have you reflect on empathy um, and any close relationships that you might have and what makes them close relationships. 
I also have a prompt in here that has you reflect on different avoidant beliefs. So I create some little scenarios and have you reflect on how you think you would respond. And then I end with a practice of having the reader go and practice asking for help. It doesn't have to be anything big, but just asking for help in some way, shape, or form. It could even be something as, as simple as like asking the barista at a coffee shop, like what's their, what's their favorite thing on the menu to help you decide something. It doesn't have to be anything big or grand. Just maybe try just little things. Set yourself up for success. Just little, ex just little exercises, little experiences of asking for help. So that's a lot to think about and a lot of different exercises to try. And But I hope that I helped develop somewhat of a better understanding of what an avoidant attachment style looks like and why people develop avoidant attachment patterns. Again, I hope today was helpful. I look forward to seeing you next time at the Turtle Shell Therapy Institute. Have a great week and take care.